0: My guest is Vijay Iyer, a Grammy-nominated musician, composer, producer, writer, and scholar who has been described as one of the world's most inventive new generation jazz pianists. Iyer received the MacArthur Genius Award in 2013 and has been voted Downbeat Magazine's Artist of the Year four times in the last decade. In 2014, Iyer joined the Harvard University faculty as the Franklin D. and Florence Rosenblatt Professor of the Arts in the Department of Music, where he founded its doctoral program in cross-disciplinary music studies. This May, he will be performing a short run of dates with his sextet and making a stop at the June Swainer Gates Concert Hall at Denver University on May 9th, and I am pleased to be speaking with him today ahead of that performance. So welcome to KGNU, Vijay.
1: Thanks. Happy to speak with you.
0: Great to speak with you too. Um, we're excited that you'll be making a stop in Denver. Have you been to Denver before?
1: Yes, a few times, although not lately. Played at Dazzle, and I think maybe I've also played in Boulder. Uh, my frequent collaborator, longtime partner in crime, Rudresh Mahantapa, is from Boulder. So we've done stuff around there in, in the past, but not not very recently.
0: During this concert, you'll be performing with your sextet. Um, Can you tell us who's going to be performing with you that night?
1: Yes, this is a band that has been out and about for several years. Actually, I I formed this particular configuration in 2011. And then we put out this album in 2017 called Far From Over. So it's most of the same people. Uh, It's uh, Graham Haynes on cornet and electronics, Steve Lehman on alto saxophone, Mark Shim on tenor saxophone, Stephon Crump on bass, and a young drummer who I've been working with over the last year named Jeremy Dutton. Phenomenal, and he's half my age, (laughs) (laughs) so it's pretty exciting. (laughs) <laughs>
0: and you perform with many different groups, including a trio and several one-on-one collaborations, including a recent collaboration with pianist Craig Taborn on your latest release, The Transitory Poems, which was a recording of a live performance you did with Craig at the List Academy in Budapest. I'm wondering, what about your work with this sextet is different from some of the other collaborations you participate in regularly?
1: Well, these I guess a lot of these duo Projects like that one and the one with Wadadaleo Smith and even the one with Rudresh, um, those are really, uh, you know, they're exploratory, they're very open. Especially the, the project with Craig, we create all the music spontaneously in performance, so it's not like we have repertoire that we then invoke. It's more that we build together, and, and that's, that, that's the process that you're hearing. With the sextet, it's more. Um, it's basically we're playing my compositions and I've orchestrated it for the ensemble, and there's a lot of soloing. And it's maybe I think maybe part of it is that it's in this format that's more familiar in the, you know, I guess in the history of this music called jazz. There's, for example, Kind of Blue is in the exact same format. It has the same mm-hmm. lineup, the same kind of instrumentation, the same sort of spread of personalities, and so it's it's kind of in that vein, and even I remember one critic, when we were playing in Belgium one time, this guy asked me, is this your hard bop band? <laughs> I thought it was really a funny question, but maybe it invokes some, just those points of reference. But I don't know, I think musically speaking, it has a lot in common with my trio, which I'm, you know, I've been recording and performing with for more than a decade. and Because it, it's a lot of that similar material that just sort of expanded outward with this canvas of horns yeah I mean I think maybe the people who are familiar with my trio music might hear this as kind of in line with that just kind of expanding on that so it's got this real groove sort of orientation and foundation the rhythms are very we pay a lot of attention to rhythm I guess I put it that way mm-hmm. and it's there's a lot of great soloists in the band so you hear sort of soloing over these various kinds of forms And it's very interactive
0: in that sense. Well, we're looking forward to it. Personally, I've always been really interested in your story as I'm also a first-generation Indian American who has pursued music in a professional context. And uh, there are are a lot of stereotypes surrounding first-generation Indian Americans, including this idea that our parents all want us to become doctors, lawyers, or engineers. And um, for me, the stereotype was kind of true, as my parents were pretty worried about me pursuing a career centered around music and kind of discouraged it early on. So I'm wondering if you experienced anything similar growing up, or maybe it was completely different for you?
1: You know, um, journalists often ask me some version of this question. Uh, It's different coming from you, since (laughs) you're sort of living through it in your own way. But usually, when a journalist who' almost invariably a white man <laughs> mm-hmm. um, asked me the question, I ask them, "Do you want your children to be musicians?" Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of like, "Oh, <laughs> you know when you put it that way, no, like nobody actually would ask, would want their child to be subjected to the, a life of uncertainty and you know no safety net and the vagaries of the market and all that kind of stuff. Like they want security for their children. Of course, anyone does. I mean, where you, maybe it's worth thinking about where these clichés come from, and it basically comes from certain kinds of experiences of precarity and uncertainty. So if you don't trust the surrounding system to take care of you, then your first priority is going to be to find a way to take care of yourself and your family, you know? So that's kind of, I think, where that mentality comes from. It, I mean, we, it's kind of this, maybe a cliché thing about Asian parents, but that, I think, is a bit of a misreading Mm-hmm. Situation I think really hardly anybody gets to pursue a life in the arts, and even framing it as a career is almost <clears throat> the wrong model you know like we uh, and then the other thing about it is like i don't know when your parents came to the u s but mine came in the sixties you know they've been here for something like fifty five years so they're of a generation who are mostly scientists and engineers and then medical people and professionals who had technical training and were not really culture people. Like they were, it's not that they have no culture, but they weren't like, you know, the idea of being a musician is so foreign to that particular category of immigrants, you know, Mm -hmm. it's not because they're Asian, but because the kinds of indian immigrants who were or non-western immigrants who were curated by the state you know who were allowed to come here in the first place were the kind of people for whom the arts were not a professional priority whatsoever you know so it was like you know as i was growing up there was nobody out there doing it mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean for someone who's in high school or college today you can turn on the tv and you'll see an indian person on every tv show you know or like <laughs> or somehow you know you'll have major figures in comedy and in film and in literature who are South Asian or even just non-Western in general. And that is new, like it wasn't there. It wasn't like that 30 years ago. So that's kind of what we need to notice also in this kind of larger conversation is that um, the idea of being a non-Western cultural worker in the United States is new. It's new to the United States.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting perspective, and when you ask someone that, you know, would you want your kids to be in the arts, I think it says something about our society's respect for the arts and music as a profession, and viewing it more as a hobby, rather than something you can make a career out of.
1: Yeah, or as something that's a bit of a pipe dream, you know. Mm -hmm. We have these kind of almost lottery-like systems, like America's Got Talent, or whatever, you know, these... Is that, I think that's the name of a show. I yeah. don't even watch the show. But, uh, or American Idol or, you know, these things where it's like, oh, this person against all odds mm-hmm. won the favor of a panel of judges and an audience and now they get to have a career in music. But otherwise that'll never happen to you, you know. Or like, oh, somebody by chance has a viral YouTube clip of them singing a song in their bedroom or something like that, and then they have a career in music. It's like these kinds of, uh, you know, this this almost strange kind of folk wisdom about, basically this fantasy about what it is to have a career in the arts that's basically like a complete crapshoot or just something randomly happens to you that's a a one-in-a-million type thing. And the fact is that there are people who have careers in the arts or lives in the arts is, I think... I like to frame it that way more. Like what does it mean to have a sustained life in music? And that's more than suddenly like striking gold, you know, it's actually a bit more of a long game. You know, you have to think about you have to think about your priorities differently. How do you arrange your life to be an artist? What does that entail so that you can do it for six or seven decades? You know, like that's the real question. Yeah. And that's not about having one viral YouTube hit or something. It's a much bigger question than that.
0: Yeah, it is interesting with, you know, with technology and websites like Bandcamp and SoundCloud, it seems like more people are able to engage with the arts in a real way and create music and share it with others now than ever before. In that way, it becomes a part of their life and what they do, but maybe not the only thing, and I think that that's really valuable as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think part of is, uh the mainstream kind of perception of being a musician, is all about the mainstream culture industry you know but there are other spaces that are quite roomy where you can be a musician and it's not about it's not about going platinum it's not about even about winning awards it's actually about being part of a community and serving people with, through the through music making that's a very different perspective and that's kind of like you know teaching at Harvard of all places which is like Supposedly, for successful people to become more successful, you know? <laughs> it's kind of like that's what that sort of mainstream, you know, narrative about Harvard. But, but, you know, I like just being on close to the ground with students, particularly undergrads who are, you know, in their teens and early 20s and figuring out life, you know? And um, part of being an artist is like being vulnerable and being open and, and caring about emotions and, you know, these things that are not valued by driven model. So find it more useful to use these other models rather than entrepreneurial ones to think more like community organizing as a model. You know like for an artist like maybe what you're really doing is trying to do good in the world rather than trying to win something.
0: You mentioned that you know representation for South Asians is higher than it has been ever before and I certainly feel that. But growing up, it was rare that I saw a brown person on any musical stage and definitely not on a jazz stage. (laughs) And um, you have often been described as one of the first musicians of South Asian descent to really break into the jazz scene as we know it. I wonder what that experience has been like for you and if you've noticed any specific advantages or disadvantages to being ethnically Indian in the jazz world.
1: (laughs) How much time do you have <laughs> <laughs> all the time I mean, in the world you know i've been like thinking about this for and not just thinking about it but living it and facing it and trying to work through it for myself and push past it or defy it for 25 years so i mean there's i, I don't know where to begin really but i guess it's, there's the question of what it is for me and there's a question of what it is for others. All right. So and then also the question of which others, you know, this music that's called jazz is, is black music. So first of all, what's my relationship to that culture, to those communities, to that history? And that's an ongoing question that every American needs to ask themselves, because we are all participating in this system that was built on enslavement, you know, and was built on exploitation of black people bodies and of black people and so like you know that's this music was born of that circumstance so then to be successful in jazz what does that mean exactly it does it mean that you have manage to control that narrative to your own benefit? And if so, who cares? Like, what good is that doing, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I'm always asking those kinds of questions. Like, it's okay, I won some awards um, according to this panel of, or to, you know, basically almost all the jazz critics in the world that, I, you know, they voted for me. But that, you know, those are almost all white men. And I'm not exaggerating. It's like nine, it's not an exaggeration to say it's about 99% white men. (laughs) who are doing Mm -hmm. the talking when it comes to this music but but then like the doing of it is something else like who are who's doing the who's actually doing this music and who you know what does it mean to win the trust and and just or earn the trust and um build community with those people you know with with people in that world and and can i first of all like kind of surrender to that history and be the um humble in the face of it and can I learn from it and can I build with people in that community in a way that is not threatening and is not exploitative but is actually productive for everybody you know so then again it's about more about serving the community than it is about mastering it or something you know use an unfortunate word but that's kind of like the, the implication so that plays out publicly but also plays out internally for me Like I said, what's my relationship to this and how can I work through it creatively and how can I behave ethically as an artist in this world? So it's always for me been about collaboration and building community with other artists and that's kind of what, you know, when you look on the surface at all these different projects I have, it just looks like I'm jumping from project to project. But really, if you think of it that way, as a a set of conversations about that, about like, you know, what is this music today or what are, you know, what can we do in building on this history, on this this body of knowledge, this history of ideas? How can we pay tribute to the people who suffered to bring it into being, you know, and then what, is, how can we kind of continue in that, in that lineage? Those are the questions I ask myself, you know, and those aren't always the frames that are put around me because people start usually with some set of assumptions about, you And you can probably imagine what they are, because you've lived it too. So, and that comes out in the language about me. Like, that's the way journalists write about me, is that I'm mathematical and cerebral. Like, if you... Almost any journalistic or any critical, even like the positive ones, like the ones that give me five-star reviews and so forth, they'll still say that I'm cerebral, that I'm mathematical. And that to me is not about the music whatsoever. It's about their anxiety about having to deal with me as an artist, me being this person who is in a body that they associate with anything except emotion. (laughs) <laughs> you know, um, being an Asian man, it means that they assume that that's my orientation, and then they find it in my bio, like in the you know somewhere in my bio, it says that I studied physics 30 years ago, and <laughs> so mm-hmm. that then I never lived down. You know that, uh, and that becomes like this ongoing trope in the way I'm characterized by journalists. So that used to get to me, like really, I used to just rage about it because it was just like <laughs> yeah. every every single day you know when an album would come out there'd be this flurry of journalistic accounts that would try to mathematize it you know and I'm like you never say this about anybody else like you don't you wouldn't say this about Coltrane who is you know like he was trying to work through formulas and diagrams and formal mathematical organization of material like that's that's literally what he was doing and it's abundantly obvious you look at his work but no one ever says that about him they wouldn't say it about uh miguel Zinon who even says an article in interviews that that's what he does so he's a puerto rican american totally brilliant composer saxophonist who also won a macarthur several years ago no one ever calls him mathematical because mm-hmm. he's latino you know <laughs> so like he's so like no one can imagine that a black person or a latino person might be dealing with similar information and so that to me is the problem it's not about what they think of me but how they that then what that then says about what they think of others you know and so i guess i i've had to just kind of learn to to dodge that kind of stuff and or just sort of bypass it in my own way or also to kind of um neutralize it through creative uh, through creative means i guess i would say so for example, like, you know, I think when Craig and I made this duo album, we both had this sense that someone might take it as this like purely formalistic exercise or as a sort of like display of virtuosity or something like that. But what it was for us was something much more emotional. And, the you know, it's essentially a series of homages to artists who were very important to us artistically and personally who passed away in the year that we made this album. So they were all kind of with us in a certain way. And so trying to connect it to something larger than ourselves and basically to turn it into something more of a spiritual meditation or a kind of emotional experience for us, like to try to put that frame around it. That was one way that we sought to kind of, um, I mean, it was genuine, of course, it's, you know, it's completely genuine, but it also seemed important to, to just lightly frame the event in that way so that it's not taken in some other way, you know. So sometimes we, I think that we can address or kind of respond to creative means. And that seems to be the, the power that an artist has to kind of not just defy, but to kind of reshape a conversation.
0: I'm glad you brought up the, you know, that kind of the racialized language and microaggressions that... <laughs> have come from critics, you know, as you say, 99% of them are white men who are talking to you about this. I heard a TED talk, actually, the other day by actually another professor here at CU named Pat Ferrucci, and he was discussing the racialized language that's used to describe athletes and um, talking about how we often describe white athletes and black athletes based on different things related to race. So things like white players are intelligent or smart or leaders and black players have natural talent and physical strength. Yeah, that happens in music, too. Exactly. So, you know, like someone like John Coltrane, even though he was very mathematical and methodical, as you're saying, he's often described as having this like natural God given talent. For the, on the saxophone and it's especially shocking to kind of see that in jazz which is as you say like an african-american art form born out of black culture and tradition and yet we're still creating these microaggressions against black people within their own art forms so i wonder what you make of that comparison and how it feels to you also as a person of color within that discipline
1: uh well it's you know it's part of a larger system of problems. You know, the microaggressions are a projection of much more macro level violence. <laughs> That's yeah. Happening. You know, like so. Systemic racism, um, really. Right. So, so, you know, so to understand it in those terms and, and you know, working, I mean, I've been somehow in these worlds and these conversations where I, for 30 years now where I can kind of listen and learn ab- about what it feels like to live that, you know, and working with elders, people who are 30 and 40 years older than me, and I'm 47, you know, mm-hmm. you know, I have a, like Wadada Leo Smith, who I mentioned, who I did a duo album with a few years ago, and we still play together frequently. Um, you know, he is 30 years older than me, and he's from the South. He grew he was born and grew up in Leland, Mississippi, and actually he was born around the same time as Emmett Till, and not far from him. So that reality was very close at hand for him. Like it wasn't academic, like it wasn't just a sort of idea. It was very much a lived experience. So, you know, knowing that many of these artists carry that with them and that somehow in spite of all that, that they're, you know, not just adhering to a format, but actually like exploding every category and exceeding every frame and imagining beyond what seems even possible right now. You know, that to me is like, you know, to understand it in those terms, like that's actually what this music has always been, is a kind of a way of imagining beyond one's current circumstances. So I guess I see the history of this music as a history of incursions and agonistic or kind of like basically a history of battles on that exact front that you're asking about. You know? And I see it everywhere we go. You know, when we travel in Europe or around the U.S. or in North, you know in Canada or South America or you know we got to travel to South Africa last year which was incredible you know just noticing how the music is represented you know what a ja- what's on a jazz festival poster and who was it catering to you know what is the venue where it happens how much are tickets and whom does it exclude you know those are these questions that are that i um that i think these artists have always been confronted with like you know, is the audience for this music, you know, in order, as we travel, how distant are they from us? And what does that mean? So then, like, what does that encounter engender? Like, when we're in front of a, either an all-white audience in Milwaukee, or an all-white audience in Charleston, South Carolina, or an all-white audience in Berlin, how do we conduct ourselves? What is the agenda? What can we, and and I'm, all those, (laughs) you know, those, that all happened. Like, I'm not just kind of this. Like, I've played for all white audiences in each of those places. And so that's the kind of running theme here. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. And so, like, what can we do when in that sort of circumstance? But then we also find ourselves in more diverse circumstances in New York or in Chicago or in Atlanta, in Los Angeles or in D.C., you know, where there's a history, uh, a community history that's in con- that's been in ongoing contact with this history of this music, and in fact, that gave rise to it. Like, this music was born in these cities, you know? So you can do something in New York, and you'll you'll find that the history is around you, you know, that people who have been impacted by it for generations, from Harlem and from the Bronx and from from Fort Greene and so on, will be in the room with you, you know, Mm -hmm. so that will actually be its own education, (laughs) you know, so it's, I find that there's these different kind of, um, there are different kinds of occasions that we have as performers, some of which are where we're more, where it's a room of people who, who kind of already are with us and other circumstances where our job is to is to win them over or to teach them something or to carry them somewhere that they didn't know they could go and those are the sort of and that experience is both You know, the one of like basically meeting or encountering a room full of people who are nothing like you, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know, that experience is one of um, a kind of like defiant optimism because you have to put that aside for a moment and take it on faith that something in the music is going to work, which means it's going to speak to them and activate them and make them feel something that they didn't maybe know they could feel that will suddenly join us or link us create a bond among everybody in the room, including us, you know. And that happens. (laughs) I mean, that's the thing. Like, it's not, it starts out as this experience of difference on display, but then the music breaks through that and actually um, offers something more genuine, more holistic, and it it breaks through the facade, you know, or it breaks through the sort of structural barriers. We have to believe that that happens or else there's no way for us to continue doing it. You know, we have to have that kind of defiant optimism in order to even just step, in, step onto that stage. We have to believe that the music is going to reach those people and, like, it's going to bring us all together somehow. So that's the kind of, it's a peculiar circumstance to find oneself in, you know, as a, as a person of color in general, and certainly for me as a non-black person of color who's in this space that's really oriented around blackness and whiteness. You know, and so then my role is what exactly, you know, mm-hmm. I have to figure that out every time.
0: Yeah. And um, these are all really important ideas and questions. And I'm wondering, you've been on the Harvard faculty for the past five years. Do you get to work with students or how do you work with students there? Do you teach classes? Do you teach private lessons? Both? What does that look like?
1: I'm, uh, I teach classes. I don't really have time for private lessons, yeah. although I have kind of... Um, you know, I have doctoral students whom I advise, and that's maybe more in a one-on-one capacity. That's more like mentoring, I guess. But that takes a lot of different forms too. But I teach—I guess I teach two categories of courses. Courses. One is something like a workshop for musicians, and the other are more like research-oriented academic courses. And I do a lot of both of those. So they. But they also kind of overlap in ways, you know, because I've, I should say, I, you, th- you introduced me earlier as having founded this doctoral program in cross-disciplinary music studies, but actually that's an old title. Oh. We changed. <laughs> we changed a couple of years ago, so I don't know where things ride around in bios that I've, we don't get updated every now and then. But, <laughs> yeah. But, um, but it's actually now called Creative Practice and Critical Inquiry, which kind of spells it out. Like, we're doing those things, and they're in relation to one another, and they feed off of each other. We are involved in music making. We're also involved in whatever the you know academia calls knowledge production. So how do those things relate? Is uh, as usual the ongoing question, you know? And that's what we're, we're we're tracing that somehow through our work.
0: It Sounds very interdisciplinary and kind of breaking the mold of what you might expect from a lot of music departments or conservatory programs.
1: Yeah, well, it's you know it's not a school of music the sense that it's not something that offers a degree in performance or something like that. So, you know, an undergraduate music major or music concentrator, as they're called at Harvard, they can do a lot of different things. They can take mostly academic courses. They can take a lot of music-making courses with me or with Esperanza Spalding or with Yosvani Terry or with Claire Chase or with the Parker Quartet. Uh, They can play in like uh, the symphony or they can play in the jazz ensemble. Those are all courses that take for grade and you can count towards a music major. So, you know, some of it is, I guess we're trying to, we're sort of like allowing it all to live together and kind of interpenetrate in a way that that there's crosstalk among these different ways being in music.
0: I wonder what you think of some of the more formal jazz music education pathways. It seems like more and more um, young people who are interested in that are finding their way to conservatories and using that as the way to break in. I wonder what you think about that model versus what you're doing at Harvard.
1: Well, they're, they're pretty different, um, and I certainly am aware, well aware of the proliferation of jazz and jazz performance programs, you know, some of them are more, I'd say, more distinguished than others. Uh, some of them have, are more competitive than others in the sense that they draw, you know, exceptional musicians. And, you know, I, I I Artistic Director of the Banff International Workshop in Jazz and Creative Music, which I've been doing for seven years now. Uh, And that's a program, a three-week summer program, that is very competitive to get into. And people apply from all over, all over the world, actually. Um, Most of the applicants are from these schools, you know. So I guess I I get a snapshot of what these people are doing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) uh, But I also know quite a few people who are teaching in those those schools and so on. And, um, you know, it's a very mixed bag, I guess I'd say. And there's it's a strange, I would say that's a strange thing to sign your kid up for. (laughs) Um, because basically in most of these programs, there's no intellectual component whatsoever. So that you don't really learn how to read or how to think. And that means you're not really setting someone up to function in the world. You know, and if you're going to pay a hundred or 150 thousand or 200 thousand dollars for someone's education, then it should include something like that. You know, so I just worry about a lot of these folks when they because they they um, they don't have the benefit of exposure to a lot of things. I'd also say that a lot of these programs are very narrow aesthetically and historically, mm-hmm. and they don't tend to really take in or consider music of the last. 50 or 60 years. So there's a bit of a huge, you know, like when people think of what jazz is, they're mostly thinking about stuff from the late 50s. -hmm. And really nothing on either side of it. know like there's all that stuff that happened before starting in the teens and then there's all that stuff that's happened afterward since 1960 you know and like if you can't account for any of it in this thing that's called jazz what are we doing you know (laughs) so that's a strange thing to me and then and then the other thing is that a lot of these career educators have are not have not had a life as an artist so they don't um, so they're asking sort of often asking the wrong questions. And then the last problem, which is probably the biggest, most glaring problem, is that most of these program programs are ninety something percent white and male. So that's like a glaring issue that, you know, plays out every year when I see these applicants and I see, Oh, you're another white male saxophonist who went to Manhattan School of Music <laughs> Like <I'm, laughs> you know, there's like a lot of these people. So it's a and it's not that there's anything, you know, I'm not trying to diminish their personhood or something like that, but um, if these programs can't even make it safe for women to be in the room, and I mean literally safe, you know, for women to be in the room, you know, let alone for underrepresented minorities, then uh, we have a problem. You know, it's a huge systemic problem. And I'd say it's worse. The gender balance is worse in these programs than it is even in the music world itself. So that's, like, we need to I do everything I can to address that. you know. But what I feel is that where I'm at, I may as well try to build another model for how to be an artist in the world, <laughs> you know, like what's really important.
0: I would love to read your entire doctoral dissertation at some point, but I uh, <laughs> watched a three-part series from NYU's Muse Ed Lab. Um, in which you talked about embodied cognition, which is a concept that you explored in that dissertation, and also, you know, where you explore some large questions about music, including why humans make music in the first place. I won't get into all the specifics. It was really interesting, but some of the ideas and concepts that stuck out to me include the idea that um, the human race has used music as a method of communication since the beginning of the human race, really, and that our ability to mimic one another and do things in unison through chanting or singing or clapping our hands in the same rhythm is unique to humans as opposed to other species. And that this way of communicating with one another is a way of connecting with one another and in turn actually empathizing with one another. So I think this is a really powerful way of looking at music and why it exists and why we make it. Then it got me thinking about the listener and specifically the listener in a Western concert hall who just kind of sits in the audience and, um, you know, they're completely still with their feet on the floor and they kind of just look at the performer and uh, listens to them. And in the 21st century, we're seeing audiences in traditional concert halls diminish quite a bit. And I, you know, listening to what you had to say, I wonder if that has something to do with the lack of bodily connection to the music in those spaces beyond just listening with our ears. I'm thinking of other traditions, like even in Indian classical music, the audience will count along with the Tintal, which is the meter of the piece on their fingers. And this is, I think, kind of like a simple but effective way of engaging with the music and in countless other music traditions, dance is a natural partner to the music. But in Western style concert halls, where we hear mostly classical music and now jazz a lot, um, there's no room or expectation for that kind of embodied engagement with the music. So I'm wondering what your take is on, you know, this kind of model of Western concert halls, like the ones I'm describing and whether or not you think these are actually the best places to experience music.
1: Mm, okay. <laughs> well, um, that, that's your one last question, eh? Yeah. Uh, <laughs>
0: I know, it's a big one. <laughs>
1: well, you know, let's see, this music that's called jazz was born in generally in more intimate contexts, like clubs, basements, you know, mm-hmm. um, places where people were kind of thrown together and piled up on top of each other, almost, you know. Uh, and that there's something about that, like, you know, when we play at the Village Vanguard, which is, for all its kind of hallowed historic significance, is actually this dirty hole in the wall. You <laughs> know, there's this basement hole in the wall. Like, it's really kind of gross, and you're really piled up together. But yet there's something that happens in that kind of space where there's something kind of primal about it. It's like being in a cave together. or <laughs> something like that. You're, um, you know, you're you're breathing the same air and the air is the same air that's moving around to make music. <laughs> so it's like, mm-hmm. um, and you, you know, you're you're hearing each other breathe and you're kind of, um, you're in it together. It really feels like, a, like um, the separation between the doer and the observer is foreshortened or is sort of like almost barely there, you know. I mean, you're still sitting, but you're kind of like, um, it has to do with the proximity, I guess, and the sort of, the idea that... So then the artist or the performer is like a conduit for all those forces in the room and for all that energy, you know. And and so then, like, the question is, does that scale outward to these larger venues? And it can. I mean, it ends up being a slightly different uh, experience in the sense of intimacy. But you also are still immersed in this, like, collective environment and that there's something that happens. You still do hear people breathing together. Like, at the end of a piece of music, you'll hear them all exhale, like really everybody. I mean, mm-hmm. it's kind of, it's incredible when you hear it, when you feel it, you know, but you also know that it's the music that brought them to that place. And so the fact that that can happen is pretty important, you know, it's pretty central to who and what we are as, as beings. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that we can have this profoundly intersubjective kind of moment together. And so I think, you know, if we, you know, that's, we work with amplification and other Methods to get the music into people's bodies from where you know from where we are. So there is this there's technology involved, I guess, to kind of extend the reach of the music. And we, you know, in the same way that like basically instruments are their own technology that extends the reach of the body. You could say. I mean, why is it that I can blow into a tube <laughs> and then like across the room, somebody starts crying like that? Is kind of <laughs> bizarre, you know, so so there's something about it that it allows us to, to transmit affect, to transmit feeling in a way that, uh, and then to have it happen in a unified, in a unifying way, have, have it become a unifying force in the room. I, you know, I, it doesn't always have to be this kind of sterile experience, even in a large space like that. It can be a celebratory one, it can be a, something where everyone is joined in feeling, you
0: know, Yeah, I suppose the sterile stuff is a bit more prevalent in like a classical music context rather than jazz. I mean, I know people clap for solos to appreciate them and kind of um, that's a way of interacting. Although I've found in some spaces like it seems like people are trying to follow rules about when they should be clapping <laughs> for a solo instead of just kind of like reacting to the music in a really natural way. So, yeah, it's just something that I've been thinking about. I'm glad to hear that it still feels like there is that connection even in those larger spaces.
1: Yeah, I mean, we move pretty frequently among these different kinds of spaces, you know, play played for... Outdoor audiences of five to thirty thousand people <laughs> played for like thirty people. You know, so it's not. Um, I think you just try to make it your business to, to reach and connect with whoever is out there. You scale your actions accordingly. You know, like there's. <laughs> it was funny when actually when the six did most of our early gigs were outdoors. Like in fact, the, what kind of brought it together was an outdoor festival, and that's you know you're playing for. I don't know, a thousand or a few thousand people were just, you know, out mm-hmm. on lawn chairs or something like that. And uh, uh, so there's a bit of, you know, basically we're using our outside voices. You know? <laughs> and then when we made the album, we're like, oh, wait, <laughs> this, isn't, this isn't working. We're like shouting. <laughs> like we're basically a musical equivalent of shouting. We kind of had to um, rethink things uh, on a more intimate scale. You know, it was kind of an interesting shift we had to make. And it was helpful for us, actually.
0: Yeah. Have you guys started this short tour yet, or is it going to be starting in a week or so? It's just
1: that, it's mainly that week. I mean, but we've been playing pretty regularly since, I don't know, I'd say over the last two years, the Sext has played a lot. I mean, we just played at the Kennedy Center last weekend and played at the Jazz Standard earlier this, in New York earlier this uh, spring, and did a lot of touring in 2018. I don't, know, I don't even know how many. <laughs> some some three-digit number of shows. Yeah, yeah. So like, wow. So, you know, I mean, it's. I think we're doing something like five concerts that week, but it, we're sort of like picking up where we left off. So um, the music has been in motion for a while now.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure you have to kind of renegotiate what your sound is going to be like based on each one of those places.
1: Yeah, somewhat like this. It's called a sound check. But <laughs> it's also more about... Uh, it's more about Yeah, yeah, exactly. I like finding finding the the temperature, (laughs) you know.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, we're really excited that you're going to be at the June Swainer Gates Concert Hall at the Newman Center at Denver University on May 9th. And if our listeners want to find more information on the concert and how they can attend, they can go to NewmanCenterPresents.com. And you can find more information about Vijay Iyer at Vijay-Iyer.com. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Vijay. I really appreciate it. Sure
1: thing.